0: If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, John 5, 30-47. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is a very important text of Scripture It's a powerful text of Scripture. I suppose upon first glance, first reading, it might not seem so tremendous, but I think as we work our way through it, you will see why it is so significant. Late this last week, I was informed that a man who has been teaching in Israel for 23 years at a highly respected University has determined in his mind and has partnered himself now with others who also believe that Jesus is not God. And this is a man who has devoted his life to the study of Scripture. And so when I heard that he had apostatized by determining to believe that Jesus is not God, I was first in disbelief and then as I sat and listened to an hour-long interview by another man asking him questions about how he came to this conclusion, a man who, by the way, agrees with him in this conclusion, I was struck by a number of things. I was struck by the fact that he only addressed passages in the New Testament that deal with Jesus' humanity and did nothing in this hour-long effort to explain why he has chosen this position to address the more standard texts that deal with the deity of Jesus Christ. This was really painfully obvious that he was unwilling to deal with those texts. This is a major apostasy. It's a major apostasy in terms of what the biblical theology that is uh, throughout the New Testament uh, has proven to be it's a a major apostasy in terms of what it means to be a believer you can't believe that jesus is not god and be a christian you need to understand that this is critical a lot of folks don't know that i've had a few folks ask me since this has been discovered is that really fundamental the answer is yes and and what ought to happen if this is new to you if this is foreign to you what ought to be happening is rather than saying, oh, no, I know I'm a Christian and I've never really believed that, or there was a time when I didn't believe that but I know I was a Christian, then what ought to happen is for you to really begin to rethink your soteriology rather than saying my experience, you know, my knowledge, you know, what I understand, what I've been taught, that's the standard. But all too often folks think that their standard is the way and everything ought to be measured by that standard. I'm going to show you from Scripture this morning why you cannot be a Christian and believe that Jesus is not God. I have a lengthy passage here to go through together. So I listened to this man. He put a great deal of emphasis, as you might imagine, on 1 John 5, verse 1. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me, 1 John 5, and verse 1, which says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so his emphasis is on the idea that if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you are a Christian. But this is to rip a passage out of its context without dealing with the reality of what has already been said by this apostle about the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, there are plenty of religious groups who will tell you and soothe your conscience and wanting you to believe that you don't need to believe that Jesus is God in order to be a Christian. That's a, that's a false religion. That's false teaching. But it's, it's honestly very, very common. So this man put a great deal of emphasis on this, but had he kept reading, he would have come to verse 9, which says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. What testimony is he talking about? He's talking about the testimony of the Gospel of John. The testimony of the Gospel of John is... Replete with overt statements regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. So now you know why. You cannot be a Christian if you believe that Jesus is not God. John has just made it clear. If you do not believe in the Son of God, God's testimony about the Son of God, then you are made a liar. You're not born of God. Verse 13, then, in 1 John 5 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what happened? How did this man who's devoted his life to the study of Scripture go apostate? And why does he think he's a believer? You know, he, at the end of that hour-long interview, said, I just, you know, those of you who know me, I just want you to you know, don't be concerned, I still believe Jesus is the Messiah, I haven't abandoned the Lord, but he has abandoned the Lord. You say, what happened? Well, you know what 1 John tells us, they went out from us because they were not among us, but how could anyone have ever thought that he was not among us? If you knew who I was talking about, if you knew anything about the details of his life, you would say, how could anyone have known that he was not of God? us and that he might possibly go out from us. Here's what happened. I picked this up in the interview. He didn't mean to say this overtly, but I picked this up along the way. What happened along the way is that he began to put a great deal of stock in what he calls Hebrew thinking or Jewish thinking, this very black and white way of thinking. He says the Jewish mind is very black and white. And so when it comes to some more difficult theological issues, not how he defined it. But those things that take a little more effort to just trust the Lord for the fact that they are true, the Jewish mind wants nothing to do with it. Now what comes to your mind and my mind when you hear something like that is 1 Corinthians, where Paul says in chapter 2, what? The natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot discern them. That's why he scoffs when he hears concrete, black and white Truth that opposes whatever tradition he's been used to. That's why he laughs when he hears those things. And so for 23 plus years, he struggled with whether or not the deity of Christ was a reality. Why? Because the natural mind can't accept it. Well, then why or how did he maintain a position in a university that teaches this as a fundamental truth. How did that happen? Because he chose to exercise blind faith. It's the only explanation. He exercised blind faith. Uh, the idea that, well, you know, we don't understand some things in the Bible, so we just believe them. You don't ever say something like that. Yes, there are things that are difficult. There are what we would call antinomies not contradictions. But there is the, the most obvious, the, the one that first comes to our mind, is the concept of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You see both all throughout the Bible. They're intersecting all the time. Both are true. And so we know they are true because the Scripture says they are true. And we experience the reality and the benefits of the fact that both are true. And unfortunately, Sometimes those who believe in one of those doctrines but not the other will call someone a a hypocrite or say that they're contradicting themselves when they point out the fact that both are true. That's the natural mind who can't accept the things of the Spirit of God. So as you and I look at this passage together, put your seatbelt on. We're going to move quickly. We've got a lot to cover. To this point in our study in the book of John... Jesus has testified unto his deity. You remember from last time, number one, we said from chapter 5, verse 18, he's equal with the Father in nature. You remember that? He's equal with the Father in nature. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. If you, if you needed any passage in Scripture to help you believe that Jesus is God, there it is. He's equal with God. That makes him God. There are plenty of other passages if you want a different angle. But this is uh, the reality that he's equal with the Father in nature, in essence. Point two, last time, was Jesus and the Father are united in works. Verses 19 to 20, also back in verse 17, we see this approach to good works. Jesus said, I am working and the Father is working until now verse 19 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but un- but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel so we saw that he's equal with the father in nature we saw that he uh, and the father are united in works and then third Third and final point of that message last time from verses 21 to 29 is that Jesus and the Father are sovereign over eternal life and over judgment. Uh, Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 26 For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. So the Father grants eternal life, the Son grants eternal life. They grant eternal life at will. They have the same will. They also exercise sovereignty not only over eternal life, but over judgment. Verse 22 says, "...for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son." that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the Father holds sovereignty over the concept of judgment, but he gives the exercise of that attribute to the Son. Verse 27, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Further in chapter 8, verse 16, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So together the Father and the Son have sovereignty over eternal life and over judgment. So Jesus at this point has declared his own deity. He has made the proclamation that he is God. He's a witness unto the fact that he is God, and God can do that. God can do that. God can proclaim his own deity. He can testify to it. He's got the prerogative to do that. So Jesus is a witness unto his own deity that he is God. It's enough for him to declare his deity for the very reason that he is God. But it was not enough for the Jews, especially with the standard expectation being a two-witness corroboration. This is standard Jewish practice. By the way, it's standard in my home. Um, somebody tells me, you know, he did this. My practice is to go to that person and, you know, one of my kids and say, did you do that? And interestingly, over the years, I've almost always, almost always gotten a two witness corroboration pretty quickly. It's just been God's grace, I think. Been a handful of times where we had to do a little more, more work to get to the bottom of things. But never, ever, 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 ever in the history of my short parenting, have I been willing to exercise judgment, much less discipline, upon a child when there was only one testimony? This is just normal practice. You want a two-person corroboration. say, what if you were the witness? That changes things. That changes things. But when I get one witness for something and another witness is completely different, you know, we need some more time, Right? Well, so this is not just Jewish thinking. This is normal in humanity. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So this is not just a mindset. This is is Old Testament law. And then in John 8, 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. You might think, oh, okay. So the Father and the Son operate as that two witness corroboration. No, keep listening. So while his witness is sufficient for reality, Jesus' witness alone. Why? Because he's God. His witness being alone for reality, it's not enough for the Jews and in his grace and in his mercy, he exercises kindness by providing an additional witness. And that additional witness throughout the text that we're looking at together this morning, is the Father. The Father testifies to the deity of the Son. Now, as you know, in verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. This is just another statement of the reality that he shares the exact same will with the Father. Could Jesus have sinned? No, we refer to this as the impeccability of Christ. Then why is it a big deal that he was tempted? Because he was tempted to the nth degree. He was tempted maximally. He received the fullness of Satan's efforts to tempt him. You say, but he couldn't sin. So how's that really a temptation? Because it's a temptation, that's why. And yet, in his impeccability, being God, because God cannot sin, He could not sin, and yet the temptation was far greater, far more painful, far more difficult than anything you or I might ever experience. Further in verse 30, Jesus says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is significant. This is critical to the incarnation. What happens in the incarnation is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity in eternity past, takes on flesh. God... Uh, It's not necessarily best to say God became man. It is best to say that God took on flesh. God didn't stop being God. He didn't trade natures. He, with one nature, took on a second nature. He is God and he is man. He is very God of very God. He is very man of very man. So in his dual nature, he does the will of the Father as a man, subjecting himself to the will of the Father. Why? To provide an example for mankind. This is critical. Don't ever give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Don't ever cut yourself slack by saying something like, well, I know Jesus is my example, and I know he did this, but he's God. Don't do that. Because what God did as a man, he did as a man. And he exercised the faith that is exemplary for you and me. He set the standard for you and me to trust the Spirit of God to strengthen him, to empower him. And remember, he was a defenseless baby. And in his infancy, he could not do what he otherwise could have done in his later adult humanity. But he also couldn't do what he could have done prior to that infancy. Why? Because he was an infant in every way that you and I were infants except without sin. So he does the will of the father and he can only do the will of the father. It's impossible for him to do something other than the will of the father. Now, back in verse 19, I've already read this, we read it again. So Jesus said to them, truly truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Verse 31 in our text. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, he's not speaking about some sort of weakness that he has in that if he's not checking himself, if he's not seeking accountability, then he might go off the rails and say something that's not quite accurate. He's not saying his singular testimony is invalid. He's saying that it is not only his own. If he had a testimony that was unique, exclusive, one of a kind, not like any other, not like the Father's, then it would not be true. Does that make sense? It's not like he's saying that he might make a mistake. He's saying that his testimony is never anything other than exactly the testimony of the Father. His will is never anything other than exactly the will of the Father. This is what makes the incarnation beautiful, is that in his willingness to subject himself to the human state, he temporarily separated himself from the use of his deified prerogatives. He did not stop being God. He did not stop having those attributes. He maintained those attributes the whole time. He never went without those attributes. But for a time, he subjected himself to the non-use of them. So... The Father's testimony of him is identical to his testimony of himself. Because he and the Father are one, because the Father is God and he is God, their testimonies are exactly the same. It is the same testimony. Verse 32, There is another one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. This is a reference again to the Father. So while my testimony is that I am God, there is another, and it is God the Father. And his testimony is presented in four sources, and this is where we pick up on your note sheet if you're taking notes. Four expressions of the Father's testimony of the Son's deity in four vehicles, or four avenues of the expression of the Father's testimony of the Son. Number one, the Father bears witness through John the Baptist. Verse 33 says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So this is Christ's obvious reference to John the Baptist and the fact that he gave an honest testimony about reality. You remember in John 1.19 where the apostle John says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So this is that to which Jesus is referring in our text, um, where he says, You sent to John. In Matthew 3, verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Speaking of John the Baptist. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father." For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, so John was excessively popular. They believed that he, in fact, was an Old Testament prophet, the first one in four hundred years. So they had no question about whether or not he was a prophet. What now now they're struggling with is his assessment of them. And so Jesus, again, is referring to this. He's reminding them, John the Baptist told the truth. You went to him, he told the truth. John 10, verse 40, "...he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true." So again, uh, one more area to which Jesus is referring regarding John the Baptist speaking the truth about him as a man to whom the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, had gone. So verse 34, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So John's testimony didn't originate with John. That's what Jesus means by that. God gave it to John. And Jesus is saying that he, in his mercy, is adhering to the Jewish standard for minimum witnesses so that they will be saved. It's an act of immense kindness, mercy, to provide an additional witness. And he says about John, he was a burning and shining lamp. He doesn't say he was the light, right? John's not the light. He was a vessel for the light, a conduit. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. But John was white hot. He was not the light, but he was a lamp, a conduit, and he was on fire and so whatever expression of the true light he was it was a very very passionate and significant and effectual influence in matthew eleven ten, jesus said this is he of whom it is written behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Might seem difficult to understand, but it's not. Jesus is saying, John's the standard, top the standard, be less. So that you will be great. John's life, as you know, was devoted to the greatest of frugality. The more I hear about people saying, you know, I got to get out of California and get to another state so that, you know, we can, you know, get our dollar to go further, I think, are you forgetting the fact that you have an amazing church here that the Lord is using immeasurably to reach the lost? But it's going to take humble people to say, I'm going to stick it out. It's going to take people that are willing to be less as opposed to being great. In John 1.15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. How can you say Jesus is not God? if He was before John. By the way, Jesus was born after John. So that's not what he's talking about. When the priests and Levites came to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He said in John 1.23, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said in verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. As a lamp, John burned a line of vision unto the light. His source of light was the light, and he directed his disciples to the light. In chapter 1, verse 29, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one thirty-five, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. You see, that's what a white hot lamp directed at and from and to the one true light does. He turns people on to Jesus. He gets people excited about following Jesus because he himself follows Jesus with humility. John's testimony was the truth about Jesus and his source was the Father. It's not primarily John's testimony. It's the Father's testimony. Jesus uses John as a testament to the Father's testimony. John 1.6 says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That kind of ties it up, doesn't it? That God would send John the Baptist as what? As a testament of God's testimony, a witness, a sub-witness, a secondary witness in light of the one true witness, God the Father, the one who testified to the deity of Jesus Christ verse 35 goes on to say and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light right he was the flavor of the week for all Israel they had real but superficial religious euphoria over John as a prophet but all that ended of course when they couldn't stand the heat from the light they couldn't handle the truth They believed John to be an Old Testament prophet, the first one in 400 years, but they could not handle his testimony of Jesus. It was too late to discredit him as all of Israel believed him to be a prophet. So they had a real problem. John, whose credibility ran deep, testified unto the deity of Jesus. So the father bore witness of Jesus' deity through John. Well, the second testimony then is Christ's works. The Father bears witness through Christ's works. Verse 36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The Father's testimony in John was great, but there's a greater testimony, and it is the signs and wonders that I am performing. These also are a testimony of the Father, but worked out in God the Son incarnate. Why do we say that? Because the verse goes on to say, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The works of the Father exercised by the Son. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's deity. The Father sends the Son from heaven to the earth. So the Father sent the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is God in eternity past. He sent him from heaven to earth in the form of a baby. God robed himself in flesh. And so the works he does are the miracles that validate the ministry of the God-man that he alone can accomplish. I, I, I encourage you, if this, is, if this seems to you to be insignificant and, and strange, um, unrelated to your life minutia, It's critical. You may never have thought much about this. Or maybe you've thought some about it, but you just thought, I don't, I don't, I've never thought that was really a foundational issue. That might be why you're frustrated with your faith. It could have very much to do with the fact you you may be misguided. You may be off-center. You may not have been taught well. You may, maybe you've heard this before. I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard the idea that. The idea of Jesus' deity is a fundamental primary truth, but you never knew why. You didn't know whether or not you really needed to believe that. This might have very, very much to do with your frustration in the Christian faith. That's often the case. There's often one or more fundamental doctrines to which someone has not adhered, and they discover, wow, I'm not even a believer I'm a religious person who acts a lot like some believers, but I'm greatly frustrated because I don't really have power over sin. Many times it's a major doctrine like this that pulls the blinders off someone's eyes when it's taught for what the Scripture says about it. John 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Who is to receive Glory, only God. And yet, professor of 23 years, professing believer for decades, says Jesus is not God, and yet Jesus is to receive glory? Hmm. It's odd, isn't it? John 2.11 goes on to say, And his disciples believed in him. And this was, of course, when he turned the water into wine at the wedding, where the wedding planners' poor planning left the party with no wine after only one day. And Jesus, in his compassion, transformed water into the purest, sweetest, richest wine ever. Then, for his second miracle, he runs several thousand men and their animals out of the temple. And in John 4, he heals a government official's son, John 5, as you probably remember, he heals a paralytic on the Sabbath. He declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath in another text, but in that moment he's showing himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath Sabbath by saying, I'll do what I want on the Sabbath. There's no breaking of the Sabbath when I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. All these are works that the Father gave him to accomplish to prove that he came from the Father, from heaven, where he had been with the Father in eternity past. So the Father bears witness through Jesus' works. He not only bears witness through John the Baptist, he bears witness of Jesus' deity through the miracles and the signs that Jesus performed. Well, third, the Father bears witness through Scripture. And this witness of the Father of Jesus as God is most condemning of the Jews because it reveals their ineptitude in the Scripture, the very source by which they should have recognized Him, right? The source which they poured over, not as a hobby or even as a serious but limited effort. This was their life's work. This would be like me getting to the end of my life and someone telling me, You missed it. You got the basics wrong. Some of the stuff you said was fine and even helpful on a superficial or secondary level, but you missed the main point. And that was the reality. He says in verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. That phrase has himself as a reference to the very voice of God, expressive of the very heart of God. He himself was, has borne witness of me. Where? How has he done that? In his word. In his word. His word is his heart. It is the expression of his testimony. It is reflective of who he is. It is his voice. Jesus goes on to say, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He sent. You don't know Him, you're not of Him. John the Apostle would later say, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see the practical reality there then of the person who wants to believe he's a believer but actually isn't. He's really, really good. One of the things he's best at doing is justifying and watering down and dismissing his sin. That's what the, prof- the, the uh, Pharisees were best at hypocrites. That's what they did the best. It's a double life. John points out so clearly a person who pretends he has no sin or even says he has no sin, he's de- deceiving himself or at least trying to. And in, in doing so, he's revealing the reality that the truth, the word, the word is not abiding in him, you know, that great passage in Colossians that's so meaningful to us about overcoming sin, you know, cutting off sin, putting off sin, putting on Christ tells us to, to do what with the Word of God to let it dwell not just in us but richly in us. You see, the Word of God has to dwell in you first before it can dwell richly in you. That's where Paul tells us to set our minds on things above and not on things of this earth. You know, check your idolatry meter and. Ask, how much time am I, and how much energy and money (laughs) am I throwing into the things that are going to be eaten up by moths and rust and thieves might even steal them? Versus those things that are stored up in heaven forever. John in 1 John 2 verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him... Listen, listen, please listen carefully to this. It's short, so powerful, so concentrated. John says, whoever says I know him, it's the person who says I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Whoever says I know him but but does not keep his commandments is a liar. It's pretty clear. And the truth is not in him. Don't you love John? John, make it simple for me. Bam. The whole book, the whole five chapters. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've said, you know what, you need to read the book of 1 John. person will come back and go, uh, I'm in trouble. Let's talk. Let's work through this. Now you're dealing with reality. The fact that there are two categories of spirituality on the planet. Two you're either in Christ and you obey his commands and you love doing it or you're not and you don't. Two, and there's no purgatory. That's one of the Pope's lies. By the way, did you hear this last week that the Pope denied that there's a hell? And then the Vatican did what the Vatican always does. A little rabbit trail here, but it's a helpful one. The Vatican did what the Vatican always does when this particular Pope says something that flies against traditional Catholic doctrine. They go back and they massage what he said and says, oh, the reporter got it wrong. It was taped. It's word for word. And then the Pope goes and does whatever he does in private and lets them deal with the mess. It's hilarious, sort of. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You see, there's a guy, there's an unbeliever, it's a mouthpiece for Satan, the Pope, who has this appearance of godliness with no power and lies about hell. Why? Because he gains favor. What are are so many Roman Catholics today saying about him? They call him the progressive pope because he's watering down the harder doctrines of the Catholic faith, some of which are right. It's all rooted in a cancerous foundation called salvation by works. But this was a devastating indictment on the Jewish leaders. This was devastating. Because the scriptures were their life. Since childhood, they would have spent hours every day with rigorous study and copying and memorization using a complex form of of study, a complex form of hermeneutics, which was mostly allegory and mysticism and, and often wrong, but very difficult to master. And that was the focus of their lives. Now forward in John 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. See, friends, that statement alone ought to be a framer. You know, nothing wrong with writing that down on a 3x5 card and putting it in your wallet and remembering that in the moment when you have opportunity to deal with someone who absolutely refuses to deal with the most basic truths of Scripture. But then beyond that, when things get a little deeper and heavier and more difficult, he just doesn't want to talk about it. He just wants to believe what he wants to believe. You cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Let me stop there for a moment. Just, to again, a little bit of practical input on helping folks assess themselves spiritually, the person who has a tendency to lie, the person for whom it is natural and easy to lie, is that way because his father is that way. And I'm not, as you know, talking about his biological father, although that could have some influence But Jesus' point here is that the person who cannot bear the word of God is a liar, and he's a liar because his father is a liar. So at the point, as you are getting to know someone, you're trying to minister to someone, you're trying to help somebody, be gracious about it, but when you begin to notice a pattern of dishonesty, this is the problem. It's pretty clear. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Doesn't that make perfect sense? It's almost like math. You know, a negative is the opposite of a positive, always. When I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. See, this is I mean this this kind of truth, this kind of powerful theological reality should do two things. It should devastate you. And it should lift you to the mountains of the highest peaks of joy. Because the pressure then is off for you to perform. See that? It's all about recognizing the reality of your true condition. The person who rejects this You know, he just wants a better reputation. He just wants people to think more highly of him. So there's a threefold condemnation here that Jesus brings against the Jews. First, they do not hear God's voice. But they would have remembered that Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend in Exodus 33:11, God spoke with an audible voice when he said about his son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So both of those two realities, God speaking to Moses, Moses would have heard him. God's audible voice is heard. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Jews did not hear the voice of God, but they should have. Jesus says in John 17:8, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So no, they shouldn't have heard him audibly. That's a special event. That's an event that doesn't take place today. It took place quite rarely in the times during which the scripture was recorded. But they should have heard him the way you and I hear him. Should have been clear. So the first condemnation was that they didn't hear God's voice. The second was that they had never seen His form. But they should have known that when they were looking at Him, they were looking at God, right? They should have known, oh, this is His form. This is the incarnate God. But Jesus is condemning them. Really, He's um, proclaiming their self-condemnation. In John 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the... Father's side, again, do you read, are you with me on this? You read things like this and you say, did somebody really say Jesus is not God? Read it again. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. It's two persons, one God, three persons, two persons in this instance. He has made him known. The Father has made the Son known. And so when you see Jesus, you see the form of God, but he's saying to them, you've never seen the form of God. It's the second indictment, the second condemnation. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The third condemnation is that his word did not abide in them. Now, this is the most obvious reality for the person who's the false convert. The Word of God does not abide in him. His devotion to Christ, his devotion to the body of Christ, is fragile at best, if it even exists. The Word doesn't abide in him. Verse 38 You do not have His Word abiding in you. It's frightening. And why? You don't believe me, so you don't believe Him. Jesus says, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So there was a time where God spoke of the Son with prophets. Second Timothy 3.16, speaking of the Old Testament scripture, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, listen, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The Old Testament's about Jesus, pointed to Jesus. Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who dies Along with Lazarus dying about the same time, a poor man named Lazarus dies while suffering in Hades. The rich man pleads for a few drops of water, and Abraham says, no, you had your opportunity. You had your opportunity to have good things, but your suffering is permanent. So the rich man begs Abraham and asks him to tell Lazarus to go warn his five wealthy brothers of the hotness of the penalty for their lack of repentance, that they may be saved from eternal torment. And the point of all this is in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And someone did. Jesus was proved right. Luke 24:25 and he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament and the prophets pointed to Jesus. Luke 24, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Isaiah 7 and 9 prophesied his birth. We sing about it every Christmas, as does the rest of the world. Psalm 2, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 22, another messianic psalm. Psalm 110, another messianic psalm. And then in John 145, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Genesis 3. 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. John 3, 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Be born again. How can it be? The wind would come and I don't know where it comes from. and It goes and I don't know where it goes and that salvation is like that. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you don't understand these things? Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Abraham in Romans 4.1 is spoken of as, as having been credited righteousness for doing what? For doing what? Believing. Abraham Old Testament His life pointed to Christ His ministry pointed to Christ Genesis 15:6 where that's summarized and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness and and that was about a that was a promise about offspring God would establish a nation. God would have a people. He would have a royal priesthood. And Abraham would be the father. Abraham believed him. So God credited the righteousness of Christ to him. Old Testament. How did they misunderstand? How did they misunderstand all this? How did they not see all this? How do they not see Isaiah 53? How do they not know that he was the Messiah when they knew Isaiah 53? I'll tell you why they don't know it today. Because the standard practice in Jewish synagogues today is to skip Isaiah 53. And there's some sort of convoluted, fabricated idea that Isaiah 53 was not credible. Convenient. How did they miss it? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Hello. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And you see that picture of Jesus, and he's so good looking, nearly as good looking as Jim Caviezel. It's not what he looked like, it's not what he looks like. He's a man of sorrows. It's very likely that he was actually very ugly. How could they not make the connection between the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament and John's moniker of him? Behold, the Lamb of God. How did they miss it? Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people. That's verse 41. From you, people, I don't receive glory. I received glory from my works. Go back to verse 36 for a minute. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That glorifies me. John 2:11. this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That which honors the Father honors the Son. That which glorifies the Father glorifies the Son. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. People don't glorify me, Jesus says. I don't receive glory from people in the context of the passage. He's talking to the people He's talking to. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you, and that's one of the reasons. One of the reasons I know you don't have the love of God in you is that you don't glorify Christ with your life. So black and white. So easy when you see it, you read it, but then you go home and, you know, you get settled back into your idolatrous enslavements. It's easy to forget this. These, these folks, these Jewish leaders would have had phylacteries on their wrists and foreheads. This, is, this comes out of Deuteronomy 6, 4. You're probably familiar with this. This is the, the Shema, the hear, O Israel. That's where we get the word Shema from this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's the command. Here's the primary command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You don't need to actually do that. It's fine if you do, but is it not a bit ostentatious to wear a box between your eyes, especially when the boxes get bigger and bigger and bigger? And what is Jesus saying to them? I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And they're saying, my phylacteries! You don't know how many times I've written the passage down, this very passage, rolled it up on a tiny piece of paper and put it in that box, and I've done it several times. And oh, I keep it on my hands, too, just like the Bible says, because I'm committed to the letter of the law, not the Spirit. First John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. I mean, what do you know about the Pharisees? Everything they did was to tie up burdens and place them on people who couldn't bear them. With all that effort to artificially apply the love of God and the word of God to their exterior shell, it didn't penetrate their hearts, either God's word or his love. They had not the love of God. They were whitewashed tombs full of, of dead men's bones. And then in verse 43, I've come in my father's name and you did not receive me. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. So you have no problem receiving men who come in their father's names. That's how it worked in their society. A man's reputation gave his son a pathway into acceptance and work and a role in society and even importance. But they did not afford that for the son of God. Verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So not only do you not glorify me, you glorify each other. Now, the Proverbs speak a handful of times about flattery, you know, saying things just to gain favor with someone. It's not honest. How can they glorify God while they are busy worshiping each other? But this is what Pharisees need. They need commiseration. They are a support group for each other's hypocrisy. They motivate each other to keep pretending to be righteous. The better they pretend, the better they persuade each other to believe those around them are achieving the righteousness they pretend to have. John twelve forty two. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. What kind of belief is that? It's not a saving belief. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They feared being put out of the synagogue. They feared man. They didn't want the Pharisees to think lowly of them. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And not that glory comes from God to man. Not that God glorifies man. But that the glory that comes from God is the glory that glorifies God. And so they didn't love that glory. They loved the glory that glorified themselves. And they loved the glory that glorified others. So they had no hope. They had no hope. Well, fourth, and finally, the Father bears witness through Moses. He bears witness through Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Deuteronomy 18.15 says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See that? See, there was the prophecy, there was the clear statement, the prophet will come. The the prophet will arrive. And this, this was Moses. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Your problem is you don't believe Moses. You want to think you do. You want people to think that you do. You want people to think that you are committed to Moses, but you're not. Samaritan woman was. John 4.19 The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. John 6.14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. It's not like they had to miss it, but they sure did. John 7, 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, it is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Back in Exodus 30, verse 30, Then next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not please blot me out of your book that you have written. See, the person who listens to Moses, the person who's committed to Moses in the right way is the person who said, I'd trade places with you. Who do you know that did that? Paul. (coughs) Paul would have given up his place in heaven for the Jews. Here we see the light of John 3:16 and 17 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you want to know why some people go to hell and some people go to heaven? There it is. There it is. It's ascribed to the heart attitude of the individual. The one who has eternal life is the one who repents of his sin. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Whoever believes in him, rests in him, trusts in him, obeys his commands. You have a pocket of disobedience in your life and you wonder why you're not getting any spiritual traction. You might not be saved. John 3, 36, so clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. No wonder the Pope and Adventists and others want to dismiss the concept of hell. It's scary. Do away with hell. Nobody's got any reason to repent. But what John is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but he'll experience the fullness of the righteous anger of God. You may be wondering, what in the world do I do with all this? How can this help me? What can this do for my life spiritually, emotionally, practically, socially? John 16, 27. For the Father himself loves you, Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So are you discouraged? Are you hopeless? Are you hanging on by a thread? Are you wondering how in the world all this theology, this is a long message, this is a lot of doctrine, this is a lot of information, it's a lot of Bible, you ask how in the world does does this help me? It won't necessarily help you. It might be harmful to you. It will be harmful to you if you reject the deity of Jesus Christ. But it will be eternally helpful, even joyous, even amazingly profitable for you if you will believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity who came in flesh, died for sins and rose again to conquer that sin and the death that it led to. The Father bears witness of that. May you and I bear witness of that as well. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We pray that you'd use it in our hearts even now as we go to the Lord's table. Pray that you'd help us, Father, to be honest about the condition of our lives. May it be that we might, each and every one of us, think deeply about whether or not we have pockets of sin that might be an expression of disobedience to Christ, maybe even reflective of a non-regenerate state, disbelief. Lord, help us never to rest in our conduct, to rest in our achievements, or even to rest in what we have chosen to believe, but help us always and only to rest in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for sins and rose again for the sanctification of all those who would legitimately trust Him. We ask this in His name. Amen.